I want to call your attention to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. We will begin reading at verse 45. But to introduce the passage once again, as we've said for several weeks now, we are in the synagogue in Capernaum the day after the Lord fed 5,000 plus miraculously with virtually no food to begin with, as good as none to begin with. And we see this exchange, it's really more than a conversation, going on between the Lord and many of this same multitude, and no doubt others from the city of Capernaum who had not made that journey the previous day to where the miracle took place. But the Lord obviously has here a heart of pastoral concern for the people. And that is why he takes so much time with them and explains things and repeats things to them. It is out of concern for them. It is in the best interest of their souls. It was, of course, a time for forthright exposure of their sinful condition their bondage to sin, their need of the grace of God, their inability to come to Christ and inability to believe on him and their dependence upon the grace of God in order to be saved. And our Lord speaks those words in some ways blunt, but again, it's out of a heart of concern For them there in verse 44. In fact, let's pick up the reading from verse 43. Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. And we'll pause the reading there. May the Lord give his blessing once again to the reading of Holy Scripture. We want to consider just these three verses, 45, 46, and 47. Uh, I hate to stop once again in the middle of a discourse, but uh, there's plenty here for us to consider in just these verses. We see in verse 45 an explanation We see in verse 46 a clarification, and in verse 47 
a glorious gospel declaration. So we begin with this explanation. Verse 45 explains the drawing of which Jesus spoke in the previous verse. He had said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And he gives this quotation from the Old Testament to reinforce what he had just said. He appeals to the Old Testament here not because it is of higher authority than his own words, but rather because they, his hearers had missed out on the meaning of this Old Testament prophecy. And he is saying to them in so many words, you should already know what I've told you. You should already know this because it's in your scriptures that a man must be taught by God. And that's what it is to be drawn, as verse 44 puts it. For the Father to draw is for the Father to teach a soul. And to teach in a most profound and lasting way. Furthermore, by quoting the Old Testament here, the Lord is showing that he himself is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in him. He is the embodiment of Old Testament prophecy. The quotation then that he gives is this, it is written in the prophets and they shall be all taught of God or by God. Now, the passage that he seems to be referring to is what I read from earlier in Isaiah 54 and verse 13 where it says, And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord. Here, in this prophetic passage, God speaks through Isaiah of the future glory of Jerusalem or of Zion in in some poetic form as a city, though he's referring obviously to people and souls. And he speaks of children here in in Isaiah as representative of those who are the inhabitants of the city. There's much poetic style and structure here. It's been many years now since we went through the book of Isaiah. took a long time going through it. But we mentioned in passages like this that we must see more than one kind of fulfillment of a prophecy like Isaiah 54, where it says that all thy children shall be taught of the Lord. There was certainly an immediate fulfillment, or we might think of as a national fulfillment, when the, the exiles who had been carried off to Babylon 
were allowed to return in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and the city of Jerusalem was literally rebuilt. That was no doubt an initial fulfillment of this prophecy. But there's much more. There is a gospel fulfillment of this prophecy. And we know that is so because our Lord Jesus himself shows us in, in quoting it here in John chapter 6 that there is a gospel New Testament fulfillment of Isaiah 54. And then surely as we read Revelation chapter 21, we see an ultimate heavenly fulfillment of this prophecy that will come to pass at the second coming of Christ. Now, these latter two fulfillments, that which occurred at the first coming of Christ and that which will occur at the second coming of Christ, are certainly related They are sometimes spoken of prophetically in the Old Testament as one. And we can't clearly distinguish just by reading the Old Testament. It isn't until we come to the New Testament that we see, aha, there is this this spiritual fulfillment of it in the first coming of Christ and in the gospel. And there is this, this more ultimate and final fulfillment of it in the New heavenly city, the new Jerusalem that John saw uh, coming down uh, from God out of heaven. Our Lord then quotes this passage, and they shall be all taught of God. The Isaiah 54 passage is certainly not the only one in the Old Testament that expresses this, and some writers uh, think that perhaps our Lord is giving more of a general summary uh, of a whole host of passages. Let me just give a few of them. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it and many people shall go and say come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob and now notice and he will teach us of his ways there is being taught by God and we will walk in his paths For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And we read and refer to so often these verses from Jeremiah 31 that lay out the the new covenant so beautifully and, 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 and gloriously. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. That's being taught by God himself. No man can put the law of God in the heart of another person. 
Only God can do that. And this is a distinguishing characteristic of the New Testament or the New Covenant in Christ. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Let me give one more here from the book of Micah. In the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. Again, Micah says, things very similar to Isaiah or it's the Lord speaking through these men so in the new covenant all are taught by God all have a renewed mind a quickened heart to receive the teaching the instruction the knowledge of God imparted unto them This, no doubt, is what John refers to in the first epistle when he says, Ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. What's John saying? He's saying in so many words what Isaiah prophesied and Micah and Jeremiah is fulfilled. You've been taught by God. Every believer has been taught by God. Everyone who is party to the new covenant in Christ in some sense knows all things. And he comes at it again a little later. And he says, The anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth and is no lie... And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Well, I'm reading all these passages just to show that this is is the great, or one of the great features of being in Christ is that God has taught you. God has been your teacher. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all Taught of God. Then he gives this this further explanation. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. In other words, all who are taught by God come to Christ for salvation. And Jesus is saying in so many words to the, the, 
multitude gathered around him there. If you have been taught by God, you will believe on me. And by not believing on him and by not coming to Christ in that way, the Jewish people revealed that they were not parties to the new covenant. That they were not fulfilling what the Old Testament prophets had spoken of in that way. If you had asked any of these people, have you been taught by God? You can imagine the answer. They would have all said, well, yes, of course. Don't you know that that we're Abraham's descendants and we have the law of God and we've been taught by God? And Jesus is shaking their foundations here. Telling them it is vain to talk of being taught by God. While you do not believe on me. While you do not come to me and recognize me as the Savior. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. And this explanation of verse 45 further uh, amplifies the duty of verse 44 and explains, uh, let me say it this way, it explains that there is a duty with regard to verse 44. There are some who might Take John 6.44 away from any context and, and reason this way. Well, if I'm unable to come, then I have no duty with regard to coming. If I can't come to, to God unless he draws me, then, then I have no responsibility to come to him at all. And our Lord, in verse 45, explains the great error of such reasoning. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. How does God draw someone to himself? By causing them to hear, by enabling them to understand what they hear. And, and that involves the the. the the outward hearing as well as the inward hearing. It involves the thinking process enlightened and renewed by the Spirit of God. Back in verse 37, he had said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And the given ones of verse 37 are described in verse 45 as the hearing ones and the learning ones. Let none be confused or uh, let none retreat into a, a false kind of humility that says, well, I have no duty to come to God. No, there is duty. Our, our duty is to 
to listen, to learn, and to obey. And so this is all explained here in verse 45. In verse 46, we see this clarification. Well, before we get to that, let me, let me just say this in way of application. Have you been taught by God? Has God done a revealing work and a teaching work in your soul? It is not enough to hear the voice of a mere man. It is not enough to hear the voice of a preacher or a a family member who is a Christian. You must hear from God. You must be taught by Him. Those who hear only a man's voice will die in their sins. And I urge you to listen to God's voice and listen for God's voice as He speaks to your heart through His Word. So the Lord goes on to clarify something here in verse 46 that again some might be confused on. He says, Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. Now what does he mean by he which is of God? Well, he's referring to himself in a unique way. Jesus Christ in his divine nature, is God, and as the Son came from the Father to this earth and took a human form. He which is of God is none other than Jesus himself. And so he says, no mere man has seen the Father, but I who came from God I alone, in a unique way, have seen the Father. This is a great claim and a glorious truth. He says, I'm the only revealer of God to man. I'm the only mediator between God and men. The Jews boasted in Moses and Abraham and so on. And he says, they were only my prophets. I am the one and only revealer, the one and only mediator. I alone, he says, make God accessible to man. No man has seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. And this is an emphasis throughout the Gospel of John. As early as chapter 1, verse 18, we read, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. The Son is the one who has seen Him in His fullness of His glory and came to earth to reveal Him unto us. He is the one who declares him, literally who 
exegetes him, who unfolds him and draws him out for us to see. The truth is, none of us are able to stand the sight of God. It it would destroy us. Our hearts would fail. We sometimes think of Saul of Tarsus, who saw just one beam of his glory shining upon him in a physical way, and he falls to the ground. He's rendered blind and incapacitated. No man can bear to see the fullness of God's glory. We need a mediator to reveal him to us. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is in the bosom of the Father. He has that full, intimate knowledge of him. And thank God he came to earth to reveal the the infinite God to finite man. We can only handle mediate knowledge, not immediate knowledge. We, we need the knowledge that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord said it again in another passage that you're familiar with, I'm sure, in Matthew chapter 11. He says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. God in his essence and glory is unseeable. No man has seen the Father. Paul says to Timothy that No man has seen or can see him. He dwells in the light which no man can approach unto. And just in the previous chapter, in John chapter 5 and verse 37, Jesus said in another setting and context here, Ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. The Jews were so proud of the fact that their their forefathers, Moses in particular, had seen God and so on. Jesus, again, is knocking the, the, the props out from under them. He says, even Moses didn't see God in the fullness of his glory, or he wouldn't have lived to tell about it. And so that leads to the question, well, What are we to make of the appearances of God in the Old Testament? Even Moses, who arguably saw more of God than anyone else in the Old Testament, according to Exodus 33, only saw the backside of God, his back parts. And though God, in that same chapter in Exodus 33, speaks of speaking to Moses like a man speaks to his friend face to face, when Moses says, show me your glory, God says, I'll let you see my back parts. Not that God has a body, 
But that you know, God must conceal more of himself than he reveals to us. Because we can't handle it. We can't bear it. It says that Moses saw, and Israel at Mount Sinai saw a similitude of God, a likeness, a representation of him. But we should also answer this question by saying that probably all appearances of God in the Old Testament were appearances of the second person in particular. In a pre-incarnate appearance or appearances, the uh, the technical term for the appearance of God in, in, is a theophany. And as best we can understand, all of the Old Testament theophanies were actually Christophanies. They were appearances of Christ before his incarnation as a babe in Bethlehem. And uh, that may be part of what we are to draw from uh, John 1.18 when it says, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared Him. He is the one who up to this point has revealed God to man and continues to do so. J.C. Ryle commenting here on John 6 Uh, thought that Christ here is saying, in effect, I am the one who Abraham saw. I am the one who Moses saw, and so on. So there is this, this clarification. Let us, beloved, uh, rejoice in the revelation that God has made in the person of Jesus Christ. It is, a, a, it is a perfect arrangement. It's better than any of us could have ever dreamed of. We are incapable of seeing God fully, but one who has seen Him fully and who has a perfect view of Him and perfect knowledge of Him has come to explain Him and reveal Him to us. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see Jesus. And to see Him is to see the Father. Or it's to see the Father as much as we can bear. And it's to see the Father as much as we need to see the Father. Jesus spoke of seeing him, himself, in verse 40. This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And you remember in the upper room discourse, Jesus says to uh, Philip, Because Philip says, show us the Father. Let us see him and we'll be happy. It will suffice. Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long time with you and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. I am the revealer of, 
of, of the infinite Father in heaven to little finite people on earth. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, he said in chapter 3. So Jesus Christ is exactly the mediator that we need. Our capacity is limited and in, incomplete and imperfect. His knowledge is perfect, complete, and unlimited. And his ability to communicate that to us in terms that we can handle is perfect. In Christ, infinite knowledge is packaged for finite minds. And we learn, hear and learn of God through Christ. Let us rejoice in this divine arrangement. Now, we hasten on here to verse 47. This is a great declaration. And in a way, he is returning here to the subject matter of verse 40. There's some similar wording there. Everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. He says here, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Here in verse 47, if anything, he speaks even more directly. He, he, he speaks in first person singular, on me. He, he doesn't just refer to himself in third person as the son, but in first person as me. He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. This John 6:47 is undoubtedly one of the greatest declarations ever made by the Son of God as a man on earth and let us rejoice and marvel in it together today I just want to take it apart uh, piece by piece it's like we have this perfect diamond that's been perfectly cut and we have all these different facets uh, to look at it through. Let's look at the facets of John 6:47 very quickly here together. Notice the solemn introduction. Verily, verily, I say unto you. A few times our Lord introduces declarations this way and it, it adds uh, solemnity and, and gravity to what he is about to say. There is divine authority speaking here. He's not just quoting the Old Testament prophets now, though they spoke with divine authority. They, they were the, the mouthpieces for God. Here is God himself in the flesh speaking. I say unto you, he, he speaks here as if to settle a controversy in the minds of the people. He says, listen to me now. Here's the final word. Here's how it is. As I look at John 6, 47, I'm just amazed. 
Jesus himself is the perfect preacher of the gospel. He says everything that needs to be said, and he says it just right, and he says it succinctly. He's not only the greatest preacher of the gospel, he is the gospel. So he says in this introduction, believe the revelation that I bring. To see me is to see God. He is the image of the invisible God, as he says to Philip there in chapter 14. And if we had time, we would look at other references where he says the same thing. This was his message. This was his theme. He says this to Nicodemus in chapter 3. He said it to the Jews back in chapter 5 and verse 24. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and so on. This is his message and let us hear it and let us hear it carefully. He that believeth. Believing is the duty that is required. And to believe on him is to acknowledge that he is the revealer of God to man, that he is the mediator. And it's not just to know facts about him in that way, but it is to come to rest upon him and depend entirely upon him for salvation, for peace with God, for all that we need to be right with God. It is to surrender to him and to follow him. That's all comprehended in this believing. Notice furthermore that he states it in this indefinite way. He that believeth. It's, it's a participle in the original language. It's one word and it means the, the believing one or, or the one that is believing. He, he states it in this, this indefinite way no doubt so as to show that the door is open to any who hear him, to any who hear the good news, who hear the glad tidings. Whoever believes on me, on me. Jesus himself is the object of faith. Many people are confused. They trust their prayer to save them. And the object of their faith is their praying. Or they trust their church. And they trust their priest. If, your ob- if the object of your faith is anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ and Him alone, my friend, you are yet lost in your sins. You've not seen God in Christ. You've not come to understand the gospel and to experience its saving power. The great question is, who is the object of your trust? Another way of saying that is to say this. In whose merits 
are you resting? Upon whose merits are you depending? This is the great issue of the gospel. When you boil it all down, this this is the the most uh, essence. This is the quintessence, as they say, of the matter. Is the righteousness that God accepts a righteousness that comes from you or that comes from Christ himself? Are you in some way trusting your works, yourself, your best, or are you trusting Christ, his person, his works, his best, which is perfect? That's the core of the matter. And he lays it out in these terms. He that believeth on me. If we look to anything else but him, if we rest on anything but him, we are on the wrong foundation. Even if we look to our own believing, we only make then faith to be its own object. We have faith in our faith. And that's a a grave error. Faith must have the right object. Jesus himself is the only right object. And notice then what he says, that the, the benefit here, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Everlasting life, as we've said already here in John 6, means full salvation. It means life with God, God's life in your soul, and a life that flourishes in in the glory of heaven forevermore. And he says that this is a present possession of the one who believes on him. He doesn't say, he who believes on me will probably someday have everlasting life. He says, he has it now. He possesses it. He holds it now. And and the truth of the matter is that immediately upon believing on Christ, this benefit is bestowed. This grace is given. This life is bestowed. Oh, this is a glorious declaration. But I'll just close with looking at the first part of the verse or saying something else from the first part of the verse. Verily, verily, I say unto you that there is absolute certainty about what he says here. There is no doubt about it. If there's no doubt in Jesus' mind, there ought not to be any doubt in your mind or mine. This is the truth of God who cannot lie. There is no controversy over this. There is no contest about it. He who believes on Christ has everlasting life. 
And so this is the declaration, but I'll close with an exhortation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will have everlasting life. You will have all the benefits of Him as Savior and Lord. Do you believe on Him? My dear friend, you must believe on Him. It is in the best interest of your soul to believe on Him. The eternal destiny of your soul hangs upon this matter of believing on Him. And so I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you, I command you, I implore you. If I had some way, I would bribe you, I think, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And have everlasting life.